Hey, this is Eric Matheson. I run a newsletter called Value Judgments. I did my undergrad at the University of Calgary, and there was this professor there, David Dick. I got to know David over the years. I never took a course with him or worked with him directly, but you know, I was hanging around the department a lot and would often chat with him. I remember this one time, David came out of his office and just looked absolutely shocked about something. He was kind of walking slowly and his mouth was a little bit open. And he looked at me and said, Derek Parfit just wrote me an email asking if I would review his work. And Derek Parfit was the most famous philosopher alive at the time. Uh, he died in 2017. And David didn't know Parfit. Um, and so this was a really big deal. A few days later, David told me that later that day when he got the email, he got emails from other people, some of his colleagues at other places saying, you won't believe it, Derek Parfit just wrote to me asking if I would read his book. And it turns out that Parfit had been doing this for lots of philosophers. He, you know, he must have just been going through lists of, you know, different different departments and emailing people, seeing, uh, you know, just and sending them a message if they said they worked on ethics. And I got to be honest, for me, I think that would have kind of taken away some of the um, some of the joy, but. David was so excited. He was just, you know, still, he thought that that was hilarious that Parfit had done this, um, and he thought it just made it better. And he was so excited or so happy to be uh, part of this kind of thing that Parfit had been emailing everybody. Well, we found out earlier this week that David died unexpectedly. And I was going to write something up on my newsletter, um, but... I have this interview that I did with David um, back in 2017. I had a podcast with a colleague, Jeremy Davis. It was called Open Questions. And we did an episode on money, and we looked at different, mainly ethical questions around money. Um, but David's whole research project was on the philosophy of money. And he taught a course at the University of Calgary called Philosophy of Money. Um, and he was really kind of a pioneer in this area, um, you know, uh, Back then, you know, that was five years ago, um, and there really was not that much work on it, and it's still a kind of a pretty niche thing. Um, and but he had started publishing some papers on the philosophy of money, and so he very graciously gave me. I mean, we the the interview um, is about an hour, but before that, we had spoken for quite a while before we actually started the interview. And the interview was just great. It was just. I was listening to a couple a couple days ago and just remembering how warm David was and how really just fun he made everything. He just loved talking about these topics. And, um, you know, it's so clear why he was such a great teacher. Um, he won awards at the University of Calgary for teaching. And I sat in on one of his classes one time. Um, and, and it was just great. I mean, David was just a force when he was lecturing. It was so much, uh, so enjoyable, so much fun to watch. So I have this interview, and I enjoy it, and I want you to have it too. Before I play the interview, just a couple things. One of them is that you're going to hear this little bit at the, at the start. I'm, I haven't edited it at all, um, but what happened was that 
when I got to David's office to do the interview, he had been playing around with his phone. He was worried that his phone was going to go off during the interview. And I, I don't remember why now, but uh, he, he couldn't just unplug it. There was, there was some reason he couldn't do that. And so he's playing around with a way to try to turn it off. Um, and so, so that's what you're hearing right at the start. The second thing about this interview, as you're going to hear, is that it wasn't recorded to be a live interview. Um, I only mic'd him. I'm not micing me, so you can kind of hear me off to the side. And uh, because we had spoken before, uh, I just kind of prompt him about some stuff. So it's not kind of a, a direct interview. That wasn't really the the point of it. Um, but I still think that it you know it, it shows uh, just how interesting the topic is and and just how lovely David was. Uh, so here's the interview. I'm going to miss him. Okay, well, why don't we start with Get Comfy. Get my strong arm going here. All right. Um, so just want to start by introducing yourself. Sure. Uh, my name is David Dick. Uh, I am a professor in the philosophy department and also the business school at the University of Calgary. Um, so can you start by saying a little bit about why you got interested in the philosophy of money? Um, sure. Um, the idea actually occurred to me one day in graduate school when I was sitting in Elizabeth Anderson's law and law and philosophy class, actually. And we had just been talking about Aristotle. Ah, oh, crap. <laughs> Sorry. No problem. That. I forget how, like, normal phones work, so... So the idea actually occurred to me first when I was sitting as a uh, graduate student instructor in Elizabeth Anderson's class at the University of Michigan. Uh, we had just been talking about Aristotle, and we'd just begun talking about Locke. And there's a crucial section in Locke's second treatise of government where he talks about the invention of money. And I noticed that Locke thought that money was like a really central feature of government and human interaction. And also Aristotle has this offhand remark about the life of money making in the beginning of book one of the Nicomachean Ethics. And I sort of thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool to put together an undergrad course where you sort of look at all the things that the philosophers have said to have about or have said about money? And so I started doing that and it turned out to be a very interesting project. Okay, so what is philosophy of money? What do philosophers of money think about? So philosophy of money is there, there is actually a book called Philosophy of Money written by a sociologist, and that's not exactly what I mean by the discipline. Philosophy of Money is when you take philosophical methodology and apply it to questions involving money. So um, I can't necessarily prove this historically, but since Adam Smith, I think if you were of a particularly inquisitive and nerdy cast of mind, you would go become an economist. Um, and people usually think that money questions are just economic questions. Um, but it's obvious that that isn't true. Just in the last you know, 50 years, there have been great and interesting things going on with anthropologists thinking about money, sociologists thinking about money, historians thinking about money. And I think philosophers have been left out of that conversation. There are distinctively philosophical questions about money, like 
what is money? Is it real? How does it have value? Why is its value stable or not? What should we do with our money? Um, all of those are questions that are, I think, at base, best addressed with philosophical methods. And so the way I conceive of philosophy of money is for philosophers to take their methodology and attack the questions that are um, centered around money. Okay. Um, actually, just a sociology of philosophy question. Sure. Do you, do you have any theories about why philosophers kind of abandoned money or, or haven't really given it that much attention until recently? Oh, I mean, obviously, this is going to be just sort of speculation. Yeah. But I think the way we think of ourselves now is as divorced from money or sort of antithetical to it, right? So famously, if you take a philosophy job, you're not you're right. You take a philosophy degree, it's going to be hard to get a job. We all joke about how poor we are. And we all sort of I, I think everybody who's a professional philosopher had to at some point look at their lives and say, no, I would prefer to do philosophy rather than make a lot of money. And so I think thinking too much about money seems outside of our mandate in some way and might even seem a little bit crass. Um, even though part of my whole project is going through the history of philosophy and looking at the really fascinating things that canonical philosophers have had to say and the philosophical things that other folks talking about money have had to say, um, it's in our DNA, right? Um, I'm pretty sure it was Thales, one of the few fragments we have of him, was that he wanted to demonstrate to everyone that he was smart enough to make money, just not interested in doing it, right? So he bought up all the olive presses, having predicted that the olive, there was going to be a run in the olive market, made a killing in the olive pressing market one year, at, got all of this money, and then gave it all away to go do philosophy, just to prove that he could do it if he wanted to. He just didn't want to. Mm -hmm. So being too interested in money has been seen as anti-philosophical for a really long time. And that that's a story that philosophers look at with a lot of pride, where they say, like, well, look, we're smart enough to make money. We just know that there are more interesting and better things. Um, viewed from another perspective, we're just really stupid because Thales made a bunch of money and then just threw it away. So he doesn't really understand how, how money even works. That's so as, as a philosopher also semi-appointed in a business school, right? I can sort of see the other way that philosophers look, um, not very, right. Anybody you want to ask about money, don't ask a philosopher because they don't know what they're doing with it. Okay. Great. Um, how should we, how do you want to take a run at your topic then. Well, do you want to do, you want, you want to just kind of give me the few minute spiel that you gave uh, About me the big bit. picture thing? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, take a run at it and I'm going to focus on this specific thing. Sure, absolutely. Um, so let me take a second to set that up in my head. Um, okay. Um, this will repeat a little what I've already said, but I think that's okay. Yeah. So, um, so what I'm primarily interested in the philosophy of money is looking at what philosophical work has already been done on money and using philosophical methods to take up new philosophical questions. So if you just kind of scratch the surface, if you go looking for it, nearly every canonical philosopher has said something directly or indirectly about money that's really interesting. Aristotle and Locke both have um, foundational ways that money figure into that they're very influential moral and political theories. Hume has an entire essay about money. Kant has interesting things to say about money. Plato famously thought that the uh, in the Republic, the ruling class should live as communists and not engage in uh, right any kind of private property or monetary, monetary exchange. 
Um, so part of the philosophy of money is just reclaiming and reappropriating um, money and money-related issues as a properly philosophical enterprise. I think since Adam Smith, we tend not to think about it that way. But Adam Smith himself was a moral philosopher before he was a, an economist, right? His first book was The Theory of Moral Sentiments. He held the chair in moral philosophy uh, at Glasgow. And uh, so in some ways, I view my project as a reclamation of reclaiming these questions as properly the, the um, jurisdiction of philosophers as well. Um, but we also have, I think now, modern philosophy has a set of really useful tools that are not being applied to monetary questions. So in the last um, five years or so, um, the anthropology of money has become very notable with um, books like Daniel Graeber's Debt, The First 5,000 Years. Um, I, in the last year, have been reading voraciously um, a sociologist out of Princeton named Viviana Zelizer, who's been doing the sociology of money for 20 years, 25 years. Um, and so already other academics are bringing sociological tools, anthropological tools, historical analysis to questions about money. Um, but the, the philosophers aren't really participating the way they should be because money provokes so many interesting philosophical questions. So I have a class called The Philosophy of Money which in which I sort of um, discuss a number of these questions with my students. And um, usually on the first day, I have a collection of hyperinflated notes. So sometimes when currencies start to devalue enough, they just the solution from some governments is to just print higher and higher denominations of bills. So I use those on the first day of class to sort of destabilize the notion of monetary value. So on the first day I can bring in, I have a 100 trillion Zimbabwean dollar note, which I bring in and say, well, look, once upon a time you could use this. Well, it would actually cost about 10 of these to buy an apple. Um, but once upon a time, this was living, breathing currency. Um, and now it's useless. At best, it's a weird um, art object or historical artifact. It's not really money anymore. So, that, so what happened to the monetary value? Once upon a time, this thing was a piece of money ontologically and had a kind of value, and now it's disappeared. And they, you know, um, the the official language of Zimbabwe is English. So the bill literally says one hundred trillion dollars, and the, the students always get a kick out of that. But they view it like a um, art object, or they view it as a curiosity. And then I take out. Um, depending on what country I'm in, a $20 bill that will be recognizable to my students. And I start waving it around. And I don't know if you've ever seen the videos online of kittens where they sort of follow a treat with their eyes, but you take out a 20 and the students become kittens. They follow the bill wherever it goes. The fact that that thing is real money and has value is as obvious to them as anything could be, right? Um, and so what happens between the hyperinflated bill that lost its value and the $20 bill that you could go use to buy lunch right now, um, that shows a kind of instability and there's a metaphysical question and a moral question, or sorry, a metaphysical and a value question that um, are both provoked by that. And so if you stop and think about, right, if you ever <laughs> just have the moment of saying, wait, it's all just paper, that's uh, an invitation to do some philosophy about how money works, um, about why it exists and how it might fail. Um, and currently, there isn't that much work being done um, by, that's a philosophical question, and relatively few philosophers are devoting their time to thinking about it. And I think, um, I, I, think we're, I think that's a failing in a way, right? We could be contributing to this conversation in a really interesting way. And money's a 
give characters a lens that we can look at philosophical questions. It's, we can go both ways. We can learn more about philosophy and maybe get some more insights. I think that's absolutely right. So I, I think money itself poses interesting philosophical questions, but money is also a great way of uniting a bunch of other uh, independently interesting questions. So if you have questions about the metaphysics of objects, money is a way to do that. If you have a question about how value exists in the world, money is a way of investigating that. Um, how much money any individual should have is a way of investigating the ethics of charity and wealth. How money should be distributed across a population is the political question of distributive justice. Whether you can use money to measure all people's desires is a question sort of in incommensurability and economics. And whether or not money can make you happy is in some ways, there are I think some economists who take themselves to have answered this question empirically. Um, but you can obviously only do that if you're very sure that you understand how money works and what happiness is. But what happiness is, is one of the oldest philosophical questions there is. And so there's a ton of really fascinating empirical data done by economists and sociologists about the correlation between income and wealth and poverty and changes and what that does to measurements of subjective well-being. But that doesn't settle the question about whether any of those things are happiness or what we should care about. Those are philosophical questions that you need to address with philosophical tools. Favorite pet peeve from my own well-being research is you know psychologists can you know say how much well-being we have as long as they categorize <laughs> well-being in this very specific way. That's exactly right. Um, so economists do the same thing. And and uh, and I think the media right. So so the media is also um, th there is the way that the media can play into this because if you. Um, you know, you're going to get a lot more clicks if you say, oh, look, here we've proven that money can buy happiness. So uh, I think it was 2010 that the study came out. It was a sort of the famous $75,000 study that in the media that was basically picked up as, well, money does buy happiness up to $75,000. If you read the actual paper, um, the two economists who wrote it were much more careful than that, but they actually separate one measurement of subjective well-being and another measurement of life evaluation. So the way I end every single one of my philosophy of money classes, we read that paper and we talk about it and say, well, look, here's some news media that said we've settled the question about whether or not money buys happiness. But we actually, what we actually have are two different curves for two different things both of which are candidates for what happiness might be and both of which and which at a certain point come apart and you may have to make a decision about which one of those things you care about how to make that decision is a philosophical matter right no amount of data could settle that question on its own okay great um, okay so what's uh kind of narrowing in a bit then what's sure the, what's the project kind of, which I, you want to try doing a you know, what, like what's your like three minute thesis competition entry for sure. the winter project? My elevator spiel for, yeah. Um, okay. So my own current research in the philosophy of money, um, began with an investigation about whether or not there were things that money could not buy. Um, so the way I think about this is a general investigation of the power of money 
the sort of scope and limits of what money can obtain and what money can't obtain. So, I mean, there are a billion songs written about what money can't buy. And it's, a you know, anytime you start this conversation with someone, they say, oh, well, money can't buy you love. And right there, well, we all know that there are things that money can't buy or the best things in life are free. Um, but I wanted to investigate that in a more serious way. So I have been working on a project for the last couple of years trying to, to give an explanation about why it would be that some things are literally impossible to obtain with money um, and some other things that we think might not be possible to obtain with money might actually be once we sort of do this investigation. So um, aside from the songs and the common intuition, there are philosophers who have actually said a few things about this as an aside when they were moving on to other questions. So most often if you find a philosopher saying, well, here is something money can't buy, they're not making a metaphysical claim. They're actually making a moral claim, which is something that like, well, here is a thing that of course you could exchange for money, but you shouldn't, right? So most often it's something like, well, um, you know, uh, money can't buy sex. Um, of course it can. <laughs> what they're expressing is that it shouldn't, that there's something immoral about prostitution. Um, Many of these discussions are set up with, with briefer, intuitive discussions about, well, maybe there are some things that you can't exchange for money. Um, Michael Sandel, for example, has a book called What Money Can't Buy, um, which is mostly a book about what money shouldn't buy. But in it, he does have a discussion of a few things that he thinks cannot be purchased. So he lists Nobel Prizes, friendships. And he also thinks that you cannot buy a speech if you're the best man at a wedding. So his specific claims, he doesn't give an elaborate um, definition or, or analysis of why this would be, but he says, well, look, there are some things that just get destroyed or, or really he thinks that they get corrupted when they are exchanged for money. So he says at one point that the money that buys the friendship dissolves it or if you know, your friend asked you to be the best man at your wedding and you bought the text of your speech rather than writing it yourself, well, you're giving him a corrupted version of the real thing. Um, but Sandel doesn't really tell us much more about that. Um, and so I thought that was an interesting start on the question. And so what I've done, um, at least in one paper, and I'm working on a series of more papers about it, was to try to figure out how it could be that it could be not just corrupting, but maybe impossible to exchange something for money. So uh, what I've come up with is a theory of what I call transformable goods. Transformable goods are the kind of things that transform when you exchange them for money. Um, you basically destroy them in the process of trying to buy them or sell them. And for that reason, it's literally impossible to exchange them for money. So this is probably inspired by Sandel's idea that there is something about friendship uh, that gets lost in a financial transaction, but I take it a little bit differently. So consider something like the Nobel Prize. Um, presumably, we think that you can't buy a Nobel Prize um, because the Nobel Prize is the kind of thing that should be given freely to someone out of recognition for their accomplishments. Um, so if you get one that you just bought, well, it wouldn't really be a Nobel Prize. Um, that view is sort of the idea that, well, the Nobel Prize has these essential characteristics. Um, a Nobel Prize, in order to be real uh, or in order to survive as an identical kind of object, has to be distributed in recognition 
for uh, your accomplishments. If it's instead exchanged just in exchange for a large amount of money, well, then it isn't a real Nobel Prize. Um, I think that a lot of people will think of the Nobel Prize in that way, um, but there's a hard question lurking here because to claim that some object cannot be exchanged because it loses an essential property in the transfer, well, now you've got to figure out what the essential properties of that object are. So now you maybe think I have to read a whole bunch of Aristotle and explain to you the difference between essential and accidental properties and convince you that no, the Nobel Prize has these five crucial features and if it loses any one of them, it's lost its essence and it's been destroyed. Um, I think there's a way to answer that question, but I think if you try to go about answering it in an independent, a way that is independent of what the agents involved care about, um, you're going to be making a mistake. So let me talk about friendship as a way of illustrating that. So Sandel tells us that friendship is the kind of thing that is destroyed when it is exchanged for money. Um, and I think we can probably take Sandel at his word that for him, it probably is. So if he had a friend-like interaction that involved money in the wrong kind of way, either through explicit transaction or if he thought somebody was just trying to befriend him to get some money out of him or to advance their careers, he would probably classify that as not a friendship. We already know he would classify a best man's speech as not a real one if you bought the text of it rather than writing it yourself. Um, but notice that there are two separate questions here that might be getting obscured. There's one question about, well, what is the essence of that object? What's the essence of friendship? What's the essence of a Nobel Prize? What's the essence of a best man's speech? Well, in the case of the Nobel Prize, I think lots of us think about it as having these essential characteristics that it has to be given in recognition for one's achievements. But suppose there was somebody who said, suppose there was a very, very wealthy billionaire who had recently become president of the United States and said, you know what? I can buy a Nobel Prize. I'll just lay down a billion dollars and they'll give me the certificate and the ceremony and all the rest of that. And you tell that person, uh, yeah, but that, that's not a real Nobel Prize. That wasn't given to you in, in recognition of your accomplishments. That's just because you're rich and you bribed them with enough money. Uh, and if the person replies, yeah, that's fine. That's what I wanted. I wanted to demonstrate that I'm so powerful that I can purchase a Nobel Prize. And if you stamp your feet and go, that's not a real Nobel Prize, I don't see what pressure there is on that person to say that they didn't get what they wanted. If they're really indifferent to that feature of the object, then I don't think it's essential for that person. So the way to put this, I think, is that I think when it comes to commodities, when it comes to trying to figure out whether or not someone can purchase an object, the way to figure out whether it can survive being exchanged for money or not is to ask the question, what is that agent trying to accomplish? What are they actually seeking? What's the thing that they want? If the thing that they want has some crucial feature that gets destroyed when mixed up with money, then they can't purchase it. If I want a Nobel Prize sheerly out of recognition for my accomplishments, I can't buy it. I can't exchange it for money because even if I get a certificate and a ceremony, the thing I was trying to obtain got destroyed in the transaction. But if I don't care, well, then I can get the thing I want. I can exchange the money to get the certificate and the medal and the ceremony and the title. All of those are available for sale. And if that's good enough for me, that's good enough for me. Um, it's really vivid in cases like the best man's speech, I think. Uh, so suppose my... Suppose my friend was getting married and was a very big fan of the poet Billy Collins, 
uh, and really disliked Michael Sandel and asked me to give his best man, his, the speech his best man at his wedding. Well, it seems like the nicest gift I could give that person would be something written by Billy Collins that would irritate Michael Sandel. So if I paid Billy Collins to write a really great speech, maybe even referencing the fact that here I'm, I'm providing you a, a beautiful poem and a counterexample to Sandel, and my friend is delighted and thrilled by this and so much more honored by the fact that I went out and paid a bunch of money to Billy Collins to, to get to make this for me, that seems like a much better gift for him, even though Sandel will look at it as a corrupt version of a real best man speech. In fact, in that case, the fact that it irritates Sandel is part of what makes it such a good present. But the, the point here really is that in order to figure out what can I buy for my friend, I need to figure out what my friend wants. If it's the kind of thing that I can purchase, if my friend has identified a commodity by liking certain features in it that are perfectly compatible with monetary exchange, then sure I can buy my friend a best man's speech. In fact, the nicest thing I could do is buy my friend a best man's speech. Um, but if my friend really believes that the only speech is the one I write myself, and if I pay someone, or even if I just ask someone for free to write the text for me, well then I will have failed in my task. I will have not given my friend the gift that they wanted. So I think the way you figure out whether or not something can or cannot be exchanged for money is, is down to two separate questions. The first question is, um, what features does it have that matter to the transaction? That question is to be settled by going to the agent and figuring out what they want. Right? What the agent wants sets what the necessary and, and accidental features of this or essential and accidental features of the commodity are. And then once you've got those set, go and check and see if all of those features are compatible with monetary exchange or not. If they are, you can buy the thing. If they're not, then you can't buy the thing no matter how hard you try. So if I want a Nobel Prize because I made great achievements in physics, I can't buy one directly. At most, I could buy a really good physics lab to try to help me achieve those achievements. Um, but if what I just want is a medal and a ceremony, um, maybe no one would be willing to give it to me, but if I could find someone, if I could find a committee willing to do it for the right price, then that's certainly the sort of thing I could buy. So there's a point where um, you and the person you're disagreeing with don't need to, you could have, you could share all the same facts of the case. You describing the case in terms of the interaction and the exchange and so forth could be exactly the same. Is this the right way of thinking about it? That, but that you're disagreeing about what actually, what the transaction actually was or what actually it consisted of. And one person would say, yeah, I got a best man speech. And the other person would say, you didn't get a best man speech. You got a... Absolutely. Ab absolutely. So, so maybe one way of illustrating that is that... So, so that's exactly right. So two people could look at the exact same case. And so Michael Sandel could look at the case I just described about the speech and look at it and go, no, you didn't buy your friend a best man speech. You bought him. It turns out that what your friend wanted was a corrupted version of a best man speech. And that's what you bought. Um, but my friend might go, no, he bought me a best man speech. He bought me precisely uh, what I wanted. Um, and on my view, I think they're both substantially right because you define the commodity relative to what the agent is interested in. So for Michael Sandel, the best man speech has those essential characteristics. For my friend who's getting married, it doesn't have those essential characteristics. Um, so let me say now that we're here, 
It might sound that this view is incredibly weird and the kind of thing that only a philosopher would come up with and it's very strange and right, this is just further evidence the philosophers are weird and don't understand money or themselves. Um, but I actually think the point I'm making is extremely familiar. So suppose that I was selling you my old broken down car um, and I knew for a fact it was never gonna run again, um, but you weren't interested in it working as a car, you just wanted to buy some scrap metal. And I sort of tell you, look, you know, this car is never going to run again. And you go, oh, that's fine. I don't care. I'm buying it as scrap metal. Well, it seems like the right description of that case is that I'm selling a car and you're buying scrap metal and we're both right. And if you got really hung up on the question of, wait, is the car really, is that object that's being transferred really a car or really scrap metal? Um, that looks like the wrong way to go if what you're trying to figure out is whether I can sell my car and you can buy some scrap metal. And whether the thing counts as a car or as scrap metal has partially to do with what you and I are interested in in this physical object. I'm willing to sell it because it doesn't do the thing that I care about anymore. You're willing to buy it because it still does the thing that you care about. And I think lots and lots of transactions um, meet this description that someone is selling a thing that has become useless to them to somebody else that is now interested in it. So I think it's actually really ordinary that commodity transactions have it so that relative to different agents, you have two different commodities. Is framing it in this um, agent relative way, mm -hmm. um, is, do you think that that's a nice result? Like I can see like on the one hand, this is a, a nice conclusion because it, it makes sense of how we can approach the same, you know, I could be buying a car or I can be selling a car and you can be buying scrap metal. Um, and so it doesn't really matter what we call it. We're kind of agreeing on what's happening and, and that's what's nice or that's yeah. fine. But I can see that for other things, like if somebody said, um, no, we are really friends after I just found out, or, you know, no, that really was a best friend speak after I yeah. just found out that you paid a lot of money for it or mm -hmm. something like that. Um, and if you said something like, well, you know, let's not worry about the definition. You know, it doesn't really matter what we call it. I mean, it damn well does matter what we call it. Absolutely. Um, so is this a nice, you know, is this a, does this conclusion kind of, is this one that we should be that we get or are there downsides to it? As well? Yeah. So that's a great question, actually. Um, it makes me think of sort of three things. Um, uh, I'm happy with it as a result, which is good because it's my result. Um, I mean, I'm happy with it as a result um, because I'm asking, I am interested in one particular question that I think gets confused and conflated when we talk about what money can't buy. So very frequently when you do see philosophers arguing about what money can't buy, they are simultaneously making a metaphysical claim and giving practical advice. So they're saying, look, friendship is just not the kind of thing you can exchange for money, so don't try. If we don't disentangle those two questions, we're going to go wrong when they come apart. Because if the thing I want out of a friendship doesn't meet what any given philosopher thinks meets the objective constitutive standards of friendship, I might go wrong and I might actually suffer not trying to obtain a thing that I could completely obtain because some philosopher told me that it wasn't possible to do. Because if it turns out, so for example, uh, Ruth Chang has a fantastic paper about buying and selling friends where she's responding to some things that Joseph Raz said. At one point in there, Ruth Chang says that friendships require a shared history. 
And so in order to be friends with someone, you sort of have to have known them for a long time. Otherwise, you're just not friends. That's why, as a matter of sort of physical limitations on us, humans can't buy and sell friendships, but some, you know, an omnipotent creature could buy and sell friendships because an omnipotent creature could create, you know, out of nothing, a shared history. Um, I mean, I think that's a cool point and I think that's interesting, but what I think that primarily shows is what Ruth Chang thinks is important in friendships. Um, if I'm content to call you my friend because we've had a nice afternoon together and we're getting along and we share some interests, it seems like it's my prerogative to do that. And if that's all I really want out of a friendship, if what I primarily uh, am is lonely and want someone who has similar interests to come talk to me about them on Thursday afternoons, I can pay someone to do that. That's a that's an object that might be available to me for purchase and might make my life better if I realize that I can just go out and hire someone to come talk to me and keep me company for a few hours a day. If that's genuinely all I want, then it's a mistake for me to think, oh, I can't obtain this thing I want. And there's a potential for a kind of suffering if we confuse it in that uh, direction. So, so I think it might be a, an unhappy result. It's gonna be an unhappy result if what you wanted was an account of the essential agent independent, what like what is friendship in the abstract? This account doesn't address that question. It's not against that question. It's just gonna be frustrating if you try to use this account to answer that other independent metaphysical question. Um, but the case you're describing, which I wanna, I, I wanna acknowledge because it's really good, the case you're describing is when we're like, well, look, isn't this going to be a case where there are potential conflicts among people where, say, one person, you know, is content to call this thing a friendship and the other person isn't content to call it a friendship? Um, I mean, I think that's a real possibility for interpersonal conflict with that. Um, I don't think it's any different on the more robust, independent metaphysical view, because there you could understand that just as a disagreement about what the objective metaphysics of friendship are. Um, but also there's something in this account that sort of explains nicely, and I think it's a happy result that we can see uh, how this account can sort of explain what's going on in the case you describe. So if I'm content to call, if I'm content to call it a best man's speech because it was purchased, um, but you're not, and it's also important to you that I acknowledge that fact, then it looks like the thing you want is not just an object Right, you, you don't just want a, a best man speech that didn't have its text purchased, but you ha have an object where you care about that feature and you care that other people recognize that feature as well. And so in some ways, if you're really invested in me accepting your view about what a best man speech really is, then you're after a third sort of distinct kind of commodity that is that has as its required features that it wasn't purchased and that other people recognize it as a genuine uh, article. So, so realizing, a big part of this, it seems, is, is just realizing what we actually want out of the thing in question. And then once we kind of make that decision, once we figure out what it is that we're Absolutely. after, then we can be much clearer about actually pursuing it. Absolutely, because I, I think that the two, the metaphysical question and the practical, the metaphysical question of like, what really is friendship versus what am I seeking in this transaction? Those two things are separable, and I think we've kept them together for far too long. Um, so once you do figure out what you want in a commodity or a commodity exchange for money or a good that is exchanged for free, um, you're in a better position to figure out whether and how you can obtain it. Um, you didn't ask, but incidentally, um, I don't think it's always transparent to us what we want in uh, objects or in experiences. 
um, I mean, I think you can, so there's a place I like to go with a colleague of mine that make, has a really good recipe for a dish we like to share together. And we noticed that they changed the recipe just slightly. And now something crucial has been lost. Sometimes you only notice that a feature of something was essential when it falls away. So say you love, say you thought what you loved was movies, but you always went to the movies on, you know, Tuesday afternoon with your friend. Um, and then your friend moves away and the theater you like shut down. You think, oh, what I, what I want to go is, what I want to do is go see a movie. And you go see a movie and it isn't the same and you don't actually like it. And it's not giving you the thing you wanted. You might reflect on it and say, well, I didn't just want to see any old movie in any old theater with any old person. The thing I really liked was Tuesday afternoon movie time with my friend. And now that those features are gone, I discover that they were essential in them. Um, and I realize that maybe I can't get the thing I want anymore. This is the great Canadian philosopher Joni Mitchell's point about don't it always seem to go that you don't want you have to I could not be more delighted to refer to one of Canada's greatest thinkers. So absolutely, that's exactly right. Okay, so can we uh, go up a level then and sure. talk about institutional things about how this, so we kind of have it on a, absolutely. a personal level about... Sure, take a break. Um, yeah, we've been... We've been thinking about it kind of how it's within our own lives. So, so, so maybe the first question is, you know, are, are there things then, or in what cases should we care about how, uh, not just how I think about the particular object in question or what I'm after, but, um, but how collectively we think about it as a society or how the state even encourages us or, or forces us to think, treat it in a certain way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, um, Thinking about it in that more institutional level, um, you can kind of build up from the account that already exists. So um, maybe it related to the Nobel Prize, but think of something like a medical degree. Um, a medical degree is not the sort of thing that in most cases for what most people want out of it is, is not the kind of thing that you can purchase outright without going to medical school and passing the requisite exams and all the rest of that. And part of the reason that you might not be able to purchase it is because you want a credential that is recognized by other people as legitimate. So you want it to have a particular feature, right, which is like coming out of a reputable medical school, so that when you present it to other people, other people recognize it as the kind of thing you recognize it as. So part of what we might want out of our commodities is a certain kind of recognition. Um, this is true for medical degrees. It's also true for luxury goods. Sometimes what you are trying to purchase when you buy a luxury watch or a luxury car is an object that has a certain set of properties that will impress other people or that they, it's important to you how other people respond to this commodity. And if the commodity doesn't do that anymore, in an important sense, it's been destroyed. So when a particular brand of luxury car isn't impressive anymore, Maybe you can't buy the thing you want, right? Maybe it's been destroyed. You can't buy the thing that you wanted because part of its existence is held up by this social recognition of other people. Um, that's not originally my idea. You can see that in the work of Elizabeth Anderson. So she's written a book about uh, questions like these. And she thinks that there are certain kinds of goods that only exist if the social conditions for them uh, exist to hold these goods up. 
And so one of her arguments about why certain things shouldn't be exchanged on the market is that if you exchange, she thinks that when you exchange things on the market, people treat them in a certain kind of way. Um, but in order for particular robust goods to be available to other people, um, they need, everyone in the society needs to treat them in a particular way and recognize them as a certain kind of thing, not just the individuals participating in it. So most of the cases we've talked about so far are just cases where I say, well, look, I just want someone to play bridge with me on Thursdays. I don't care what the rest of you think. But there are other things where you, you say like, no, I want a medical degree that other people recognize as legitimate. I want a marriage that other people acknowledge as the kind of thing that is legitimate. So part of the good itself is the way other people respond to it. And so insofar as those are, so part of Elizabeth Anderson's point is some of those goods are very important for sort of a good life and human flourishing. So maybe the state has an interest in protecting those goods so the people who want to access them can. Um, I actually think that's a really interesting question because if there's a thing that I want that only exists if both I and pretty much everybody else treat it in a certain way, what obligation is there for other people to treat that object in a way that I want them to so I can have the thing that I want? For certain objects that are, right, so for certain things that are really important and for maybe for democratic equality, it'd be important that uh, marriages of many different descriptions be recognized as such by lots of different people. Um, but suppose, you know, suppose what I really, really want is a car that everybody is impressed by. It doesn't seem like the state has an interest in protecting that want of mine and making sure that I can still access impressive luxury objects. Um, but the two cases are structurally very similar. And I think there's an interesting moral and political question about how we should treat cases like that and what the state should do and what individually people should do in terms of their moral obligations. some of the stuff about you know where these um, where there can be disagreement about this so you've touched on marriage um, you know, what about some of the things in like where, where some people think wow there could be a market for this and, and that would be fine um, and and okay and other people just think that that shouldn't be the case the, the tip stuff oh the tip stuff sure absolutely Do you want me to cover basically what we've talked about before on that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I, th I think if that's yeah, the yeah, absolutely. That, I think that's perfect. So, um, sure. Okay. So, um, so some of this stuff comes up in the the moral discussion uh, of trying to figure out what the morals of markets are and what sort of things can permissibly be put on a market or not. Um, so. Some people think, right, so uh, some people are currently arguing that um, kidneys ought to be put onto a market in order to increase the overall supply of kidneys. There's a sort of standard economic argument that um, currently in all the places where kidney markets are forbidden, that's creating economic inefficiencies because there are people who would prefer to sell their kidneys and have the money in exchange. And there are people who have money but not kidneys and would prefer to sell that. So that's a classic inefficiency because you have preferences that you can align. And so the general idea is like, well, for important things, right? People are dying as a result of not getting kidney transplants. Maybe introducing a market will increase the overall supply of how many kidneys there are. 
using only the people who want to buy and want to sell kidneys, right? We're just blocking them from doing that. So the so the general idea is that when the general intuition at least is that whenever you have a financial incentive to do something, right? If we give people a financial incentive to sell their kidneys, there will be more kidneys available for people. Well, we know that this isn't always true. Um, the first sort of hints of this is something called the crowding out effect. So the most the most famous early suggestion of this is from a guy named Richard Titmus, who was a sociologist writing about um, the question of whether the United Kingdom should have paid markets in transfusable blood, because up until that point they only had altruistic markets. You could you could give um, donor blood away, but you couldn't sell it. So Titmus argued that if the UK introduced a market in blood, that would actually backfire and decrease the amount of usable blood that was available. He argued um, according, right, he, he argued uh, like this. So if you're going to, if, you're, if your reasons for donating blood are altruistic, if you're going in to help someone, um, then if you have a disease or if you know you can't help someone, there's no reason for you to donate. There's no reason for you to waste your afternoon and put blood with pathogens into the supply because if your reasons were to be helpful, you can't be helpful. You won't do it. But if instead what you need to do and what you're trying to accomplish in donating your blood is to get the $25 or whatever it is, then you have reason to conceal your pathogens, right? You might lie about some disease that could be put into the blood supply. Um, and so Titma said, look, if we introduce a market in blood, we're just going to have less usable blood to have. So we shouldn't introduce these financial incentives because it's going to backfire on us. So Titma suggested this uh, and brought many tables uh, and did a lot of data analysis to suggest it. And this, this crowding out effect has now been verified in several cases um, in later psychological literature. The most famous case is uh, nuclear waste in Switzerland, where... Uh, the government offered the various can the various Swiss cantons said, well, how many of you are how many of your population are willing to take on the nuclear waste as a matter of sort of civic duty? Roughly 50% of the population was willing to take it on. And then they would ask them again and say, well, would you be willing to take on this nuclear waste if we also paid you? And then there were three different uh, values of money that were large enough to matter to basically a province or a state. Um, when the Swiss government did that, the willingness of the population went down rather than up. Fewer people were willing to do for money um, something that more people were willing to do for free. So we know there are cases where um, adding financial incentives decreases the overall motivation or supply of something rather than increases them. And so this is how the crowding out effect is usually understood. But I actually went back and reread all of Titmus's book. He was writing in the 1960s and it was published in the 1970s. I went back and reread all of Titmus's book. And Titmus actually has a more metaphysical argument lurking in his book as well. He does think that paid markets in blood will decrease the amount of usable blood available. But he has an entire chapter devoted to the idea that if we permit a market in blood in the UK, that will infringe on the right of other people to be altruistic. It infringes on other people's right to make altruistic donations if we let anyone permissibly sell their blood. Let me say that again. Um, so Titmus thinks that we destroy the possibility of altruism for anyone in a market where we allow any single person to sell their blood. 
he thinks that the people who wish to donate altruistically will be unable to when they are participating in a market in blood rather than just an altruistic blood donation scheme. Um, so what I think this reveals is that for Titmus, um, blood is what I would call an invariably transformable good. It's the kind of thing that gets destroyed whenever a market in it is introduced or whenever it's put onto a market. But for Tismas, it's not just important that any given individual give rather than sell their blood. It's important that no one be permitted to sell their blood because he thinks that's what's required for even the possibility of blood being given altruistically. He thinks empirically mistakenly in my view, he thinks that if anyone in a society is permitted to sell their blood, then no one can altruistically give their blood. He seems to have some idea that if there's even the sort of hint of financial uh, incentives, that destroys all altruistic motives. I think that's probably not true. You can do things for the sake of money while also wanting to do them for their own sake. But for, for Titmus, it's really interesting to see that Titmus thinks of just, just human blood itself as the kind of thing, the kind of commodity that is destroyed when it's in a market. Ordinarily, that's understood, right? Titmus is understood as saying, oh, the sort of um, biological, the, the medical quality of that blood is decreased in uh, a market for it, which he does claim. But he also has a claim there and an entire chapter devoted to it to say the moral quality of the blood is decreased in the market. And he's gone, I can't ask him, but I bet if all the practical problems were solved and if the empirical answer were different, that you actually got more usable blood rather than less in a market, he'd still be against it because it isn't the kind of thing he was after. He wanted blood to be a source of social cohesion. He wanted blood to be a vehicle for altruism. And he thinks that's destroyed in places where there are markets for blood whether or not there is more or less medically usable blood or not. Mm -hmm. I guess we don't have to think like other people have have said, kind of made similar points, but haven't cashed it out in, in quite his way that, you know, we don't have to think about it in terms of a right to be altruistic or something. We can just think about it in terms of um, people stop doing things for the right reasons. The reason we want people to donate blood is is for altruistic reasons. And when we introduce a financial incentive, whether or not they can still, you know, you could still do it altruistically if the money doesn't matter to you or something like that. Right. It just gets rid of, um, it changes how the, how the process goes. Yeah. So, so that's an interesting way. So for, for Titmus, he thinks of it very much in black and white terms, that as soon as a market is introduced, then all altruistic motives were um, destroyed. The way you're sort of describing it is like, well, rather than thinking they're all destroyed, you might think that we have an interest in encouraging a certain set of motives, right? So in the altruistic scheme, we're encouraging more altruism um, instead of encouraging more self-interestedness, right? And maybe we have reasons to sort of encourage that. And I, th I think that's a plausible thing to think. Um, in Titmus's own case, according to his own study at least, and it has been questioned by sort of later scholars, um, Titmus got lucky because the two the, the two things you might care about um, pointed in the same direction. If you wanted better quality blood, you shouldn't have a market in it, according to him. If you wanted better medical quality blood, you shouldn't have a market. And if you wanted better moral quality blood, you shouldn't have a market on either case. If it turned out and some people, so you could, you could understand the disagreement about the kidney market right now in I think exactly these terms. Some people project and say, 
well, what we really need are more medically usable trans, you know, we need more medically usable kidneys. We need kidneys that we can transplant and we don't care why, I mean, other than murdering people, we don't care whether you gave it as a donation or for financial reasons. We just want more kidneys that we can transplant. You might look at other people and say, well, that would sacrifice another important value that we have. We want to instead encourage people to give, but we don't want more people doing for uh, doing those things for the wrong kinds of reasons, and we want to sort of encourage that. It's almost the disagreement between consequentialists and deontologists, the ones who care, the deontologists who care about why you do something, and the consequentialists who care much more just about what you do, regardless of your reasons. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so what else have we, have we missed from your account so far? I have a couple other like more general ones, but I want to make sure that we cover mm -hmm. all. So maybe I could just say something summative about yeah. the the um, the surgeon the sort of agent relative way of thinking about these things. Yeah. So yeah. So um, so I think the real advantage of understanding that when you ask the question about what money can and cannot buy, there are two different questions going on. Um, one question is what is an agent trying to achieve, and then another question is well how do the features that the agent seeks interact with money. Once we understand that those two questions come apart, we're in much better shape to um, make much more accurate and sharp um, perceptions about what's going on in these monetary cases. Um, so what I think is important to remember um, when thinking about what money can't buy is that you should understand how commodities are defined in this agent relative way. Whether or not it's possible to exchange something for money or not depends very much on what the agent wants. So the question of what money can and cannot buy is agent relative. When you understand that, you will notice that there are many things that indeed literally are impossible to exchange for money. There is a hard metaphysical limit on the market that there are some things that simply cannot be put on a market or exchanged for money because they will be destroyed in the process. Um, but also, there's another sort of interesting reveal when you think about commodities in this way, because it turns out that some paradigm things like maybe friendship turn out to be the kind of thing that you can exchange for money, depend, or at least a particular agent could exchange for money, depending on how they define the essential and accidental properties of that object. So what this account sort of reveals is that there are limits to what money can buy. They're not exactly the ones you might have thought that were there in the beginning. So money in some places cannot reach. We know, I think this demonstrates that money cannot reach everywhere. The market just simply cannot occupy every space of the universe. So it's not possible to have a market in everything. But it also reveals that the market can extend to some surprising places that we thought maybe it wasn't possible for it, extend, for it to extend to uh, in the first place. And this opens up a whole interesting set of moral and political questions that I hope we all think about uh, later on. Mm -hmm. Okay, awesome. Um, well, I think you know, one of the things that we've circled around a bunch and, and have kind of done it indirectly is, I wonder if you can just say a little bit about how shown how philosophy of money is different from how economists think about it. Um, 
this is like the reverse of Blade Race, which can you tell us sure. how? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, if, if there are some kind of, you know, kind of standout-ish things, either from your your own kind of view that you're working on now, or just more generally. Um, I think it's pretty obvious already that there's kind of sure. a sort of paradigmatic way that economists approach these sorts of questions, and um, you're doing that in, in not that way. Right, like a couple of ways. Um, yeah, I think I, I think I can do that. Sure. Um, so, um, I'll just say what you just said to me in a way, right? Um, so what this sort of demonstrates is the interesting things that get revealed when you take philosophical methods and apply them to questions about money that are usually the purview of, say, economists. So there is a literature among economists of about what sort of things cannot be put on onto markets. Um, but the way they approach this question, understandably enough, is in uh, the way is using the methodology of economics. So most of the literature about what sort of things can't go on to markets are just an analysis of market failures. So when you read an economist's paper, uh, there is a category of things. Um, so uh, sorry, I have to. I forgot the name of the thing. I'll need a re. I need a rerun on this one. Um, the category of things are unmarketable goods. The lighthouse is the standard example of them. Sorry, can I look yeah, something yeah. up? Sorry. I just want to make sure I'm getting the right term. Non-excludable. That's what I wanted. Okay, thank you. Um, we good? Yep. Okay, so um, so what I think this actually illustrates is the way you get interesting, different things revealed when you bring philosophical methods to these questions, rather than the standard sort of economic or other historical or anthropological methods you might use. So there is a literature about. Um, what sort of things cannot be put onto markets um, written by economists? And they approach this, understandably enough, the way economists would. So their analysis of things that can't be put onto markets are things that fail to generate efficient markets when you put them on a market. So uh, the standard example and the most telling example that they have are something called a non-excludable good. So these are goods that are either too expensive um, to force people to pay you for, or just impossible to force people to pay you for. So the standard example of a non-excludable good is a lighthouse. So if you build a lighthouse uh, and put it out on the rock to alert the ships that it might be there, it's practically impossible to charge every ship who benefits from the light of the lighthouse um, in order to get uh, revenue from it. So Lighthouses, right? The light from a lighthouse is the sort of thing that resists being put on a market because, well, really, it's, I mean, you could charge every ship 
in order to see the light from your lighthouse through a very elaborate setup. But you'd spend so much money on that infrastructure that you'd lose money in the deal, so the market would be inefficient. So when economists approach this question of like, well, look, are there things that couldn't be exchanged for money or couldn't be put onto a market? The way they view it is through the lens of, well, look, uh, is that market sort of necessarily the kind of thing that will fail because it will never result in an equilibrium or it will never be the kind of thing that you could turn a profit on? And that's how they conceive of the question of whether or not there are things that can't be put on to the market. And that's a perfectly lovely question. And that reveals interesting things about the way markets work. Um, but ordinarily, an economist is not going to look at it in terms of the metaphysical and value theory way that I am approaching it to figure out if there are things that... So, so notice with the lighthouse, it's not really that the light from a lighthouse is impossible to put on a market. It would just be a really inefficient market. It would be more expensive than it would be good. It's not that you couldn't put lighthouse light from a lighthouse on a market. It would just be economically stupid to do it. Um, if you're interested in the question of like, wait, are there some things that no matter how hard you tried, you couldn't put on a market? Well, that's a philosopher's question. And so I've approached that question with sort of philosophical methods to try to figure out if there are things that are genuinely impossible to put onto a market. And in thinking about that, we ended up revealing a bunch of other interesting things. And so hopefully these will feed into economists, right? To economists, sociologists, and other people thinking about markets and money. Um, but what's nice to notice is that money provokes a bunch of different questions, including philosophical ones. And um, when you apply philosophical methods to those questions, you get interesting results. Great. Is there anything else that you want to throw in there? I think we covered all the... Um, no, I think this is... I mean, I feel really good about this. This has been... Uh, a wonderful advertisement for my, I'll give you a copy of my paper yeah. before you go, which is, this is all sort of based on, but okay. this is great. I love it. Okay. Awesome.